sermon title today is Walk on the Wild Side, from Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. If you didn't pick it up in your newsletter or your worship guides or anything else, we're looking at the surprising texts of Advent. These are the traditional gospel texts that we read from Matthew every three years in tradition for Advent. They are the ones that Advent is built around. And if they don't sound very Advent and hope and peace to you, maybe we're not seeing hope and peace the same way the original writers were inspired for hope and peace. As I was reminded this week when I submitted my Bible study for faith element for love week in a couple weeks, when I submitted it and got a response back, you know this is love week, right? I said, yes, but it's Isaiah chapter 7. And Isaiah chapter 7 was written in a time that wasn't exactly fun and glorious. We sometimes miss that, which is why the title last week was, Do You Hear What I Hear? Because there's a lot of things I hear when I read biblical texts may not be exactly what God intended originally, but I'll get to that in a second. Let me just read to you, and I'm just going to read it. I need to make note that I'm going to read from the NIV translation. It may not say that on the PowerPoint slides. I'm just going to read to you the suggested gospel text for today. You've already heard much of it. Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. It says, In those days John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who is spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel hair. And he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all of Judea and the whole region of Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourself, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hands, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn, and burning up chaff with unquenchable fire. That John the Baptist didn't fool around, huh? He was hellfire and brimstone. He was in the wilderness out where the Dead Sea was. And let me help you, when they call a sea dead, it's not exactly a fun place to live. He lived on a basically a starvation diet, and so did all of his disciples. Everyone who followed John lived on this starvation diet. He wore clothes that rummage sale people would not have even touched. And when he preached, oh, he seemed angry the whole time. The kingdom of God was coming, all right, he said. But if you thought it was going to be a day at the beach, you better think again. Some people thought he was Elijah. Some people thought he was the Messiah, the anointed one. But John would have none of this. As Frederick Buechner says, John the Baptist would have said, I'm the one yelling myself blue in the face in the wilderness. I'm the one trying to knock some sense into your heads. 
John the Baptist, according to Tom Long, would have said that John the Baptist seemed to appear from an old retirement home of Old Testament prophets, and he escaped, and he was just wandering around mindlessly. That's what John the Baptist seemed like. John the Baptist appearing in this text, the way he appears in this event, in this time, would have been the equivalent of Abraham Lincoln magically appearing in the U.S. Congress in the middle of the impeachment trial and saying four score and seven years ago. That is how different and weird John the Baptist would have seemed. His basic message is not complicated. Get your act together. The kingdom of God is at hand. We know from reading ahead that he points at Jesus and says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus is the reason that John seems so angry with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, good news, especially based on last week, figuring out what the meaning of this text is not hard. You don't need to grab a Bible dictionary. You don't need to read more than one translation. John said, I need you to repent and get your act together. In case you're unaware of the, because it's the same meaning in Hebrew as it is in Greek, so it's the same in the Old Testament, New Testament. The word repent always means that you were going one direction, you turn around and go the opposite direction. Okay, that makes sense. Guess what? That's what it meant in the first century. That's exactly what it means in the 21st century. But I don't want to turn around. Well, you should have seen this coming. Real quick, maybe we have things that we need to repent of. And maybe we need to repent of them in this Advent season because many of us, minister included, have brought baggage to the Advent season that was never, ever, ever intended. And if these sound harsh, remember I'm preaching on John the Baptist. I could let him preach. It'd be way scarier. One, we need to repent from thinking that the biblical writings were written just for us. Doesn't mean you shouldn't read them. Doesn't mean when you grab your one-year Bible that it won't have meaning for you. But when you read the biblical text, as if it fell from the sky and it was just for you, you are making a mistake. One of the classic works, and I can see I have the really, really old version, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth by Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart, which every denomination, Catholics included, consider them to be definitive scholars on biblical interpretation. Here's the good part. See how small this book is? Now, the one in the picture is a little bigger because I made bigger words and they added a few things to clarify a few things. This book has been such a classic that it's been used in seminaries for 30-something years. This was my textbook for biblical hermeneutics, which is a clever way of saying, hey, how do you figure out what it meant originally so you can be like Hermes and pull the message out and preach it to today? this book. This is not arguable. That this book is considered to be definitive and clear and wonderful and great. And at some point, if you wanted to get two or three together and do a small group study, I could help you with that with my eyes closed. As mentioned by this quote you're about to see. Go ahead, see if this sounds familiar. Page 26 from their book. On this one thing, however, there must surely be agreement. A text can never mean, cannot mean what it never meant. I've heard that. Or to put that in a positive way, the true meaning of a biblical text for us is what God originally intended it to mean when it was first spoken. 
The true meaning of a biblical text is what it meant when it was first spoken to the people it was first spoken to. That's the starting point. In their book, they go on to then say, well, surely someone will ask, but isn't it possible for a text to have an additional, fuller, deeper meaning? Yes. But who gets to decide? In certain Christian traditions, there's a magistrate of bishops that just decide this and we just all smile and nod. What about us? How do we get to decide? Well, I think it means this, and I think it means this. How about we figure out as best we can what it meant originally? Today, that wasn't hard. John the Baptist told the Pharisees and Sadducees, hey, I guess you better get your act together because Jesus is coming and this is going to change everything. When in doubt, as they say in their book, we need to not search for the deeper meaning Because especially if the text never meant what it's now meant to say, of such things are cults born and innumerable lesser heresies. If you were here last week, you may have a clue what I'm referring to. If you weren't, it's okay. Two, because I don't want to rant around about the boring stuff. I want to get to the stories I promised you about. Two, we need to repent of allowing embedded theology to drive our character. Hey, there's a one-year Bible. You can purchase your local bookstore for not very much. I believe I did that thing that wives are usually accused of doing for their husbands because we're so bad at picking out Christmas presents, where they suggest what we should get, and you better not miss it. Now, you see, some of you are laughing with that scared. Am I allowed to laugh at that? Um, I told Maggie, I cannot remember, I believe it was her birthday, that this is what I want. Is this a really good thing? No. Is it really sturdy? No. Does it divide the biblical text into pieces so that I can have it divided for me as a type A person? Yes. And has it been really exciting reading through Daniel and Hosea and Psalm 120 through 126 and 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John in the first chapter of Revelation today? Not always. But much of the reason that that phrase embedded theology and what the Bible means is confusing to you is the indictment that we all know. Kind of hard to complain that God doesn't speak to you when you don't read the Bible. And are there going to be weeks where you really wish there was stuff that's in your reading that you really didn't want to have to read? Yeah. I'll let you read through the last six chapters of Daniel sometimes. Great. Um, But if you don't read your Bible, don't blame God that you can't understand what to do. But more importantly, where that phrase comes from, once again, you want to do a small group, I can do this one really easily. Notice, once again, a small book. Howard Stone, James Duke, How to Think Theologically, a standard master's level seminary textbook, which says most of what you believe is embedded theology. It's things you've always thought. It's things your culture has always taught you. You've always had the idea that these things were true, and when someone challenges those, it makes you uncomfortable. Much of your religious values have nothing to do with the biblical text and have nothing to do with Jesus. They're just things you've always done and think that's how they should always be. Much of my religious values are things that have nothing to do with the biblical text and things I've always thought should happen. And many of those religious values, which we're going to get into in future worship services, are the things that push generations away because we don't really realize it. And we wonder why they don't listen to what we say. As one scholar said, Jesus may be in your heart, but grandpa's in your bones. 
And those things that you remember hearing, you haven't challenged. And maybe you should. John the Baptist came to challenge every single theological concept of the entire Old Testament at that point. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were doing a good job except to protect the people. They added a whole bunch of useless stuff that didn't matter. And John the Baptist says, and I quote, there's an axe that's coming to your tree and we're gonna, Jesus is going to chop it down. Ha ha for you. And if you're here in a couple months, I'll tell you when that actually happens historically. It's probably about 35 years after this event. We know when Jesus comes and chops the tree and it's amazing. Many of the ideas you have about how the world's going to come to an end, about how worship should be, about how people should behave, are embedded ideas that your U.S. culture has taught you. You have this idea that everybody should be nice to you. U.S. culture has taught you that. Good for you. That's not common. It's just something embedded. Not all embedded theology is bad. But remember, when it becomes the water that you swim in, and you just swim in it like everybody else, You don't even notice how dirty the water is. Jesus may be in your heart, but Grandpa's in your bones. Okay. Last week's sermon may have been tough for many of you because it sounded like I was being overly critical of things that we have valued for much time. I'm only asking us to question them because a biblical text can never mean what a biblical text never meant. We have embedded theological ideas in our culture that John the Baptist, if he was here, would be smashing because they're unhealthy and they don't help us. I'm going to present two examples, classic people you can easily check up on me because, as I've mentioned to other people, I want to make sure you're like, well, he's just making this stuff up. No, I'm giving you actual tangible, factual data that you can check yourself. We live in the world of Google. Do it. First, Benjamin Corey. Wonderful scholar, and you should be concerned already that my wife is giggling. She's read much of Benjamin Corey's work. Let me read from a document he wrote in 2014, and I'm just going to read much of it. He writes, Like many of you, I grew up as an end-time believer. I mean, pre-tribulation, rapture, antichrist, battle of Armageddon, the whole nine yards. While other kids were thinking about, and I had to edit this part, by the way. While other kids were thinking about where to go to college, I was worried about the the rapture would come before I was intimate with a woman. Yeah, I had to edit a lot of that. Or worse... I would actually be intimate with a woman and the rapture would happen. And well, that would certainly be disappointing and awkward. (laughs) Many of, see how the editing occurred? You're going to want to look this article up, aren't you? Um, All joking aside, many of the celebrity ministers that I listen to, one who I listen to every Sunday, says that much of his theology he grew up was based upon that same thing. And he's the lead pastor of the largest multi-site movement throughout the nation. He said, walking away from belief in the end times and all the baggage that come with it wasn't easy. Strangely enough, I was actually quite frightened to let go of such a pessimistic view of the future in lieu of a healthy, optimistic eschatology. Eschatology is a big word that means theology of how the world comes to an end. Back in 2007, he said, my wife took me on a weekend trip getaway to Boston because she wanted me to meet her friend Joe, who had done two master's degrees at Gordon Cromwell Seminary. And was getting ready to do his PhD at the theology of, in theology at the University of Aberdeen. She was hoping that introducing to me would gently prod me into going to seminary. You know how spouses are. But at least temporarily the plan backfired. The conversation with Joe went great. Until he started talking about the rapture being a joke. 
I still remember walking back to the car when we left dinner, telling my wife what a heretic this guy was. Shocked that she would have friends like that. I mean, he was only a theologian who had gone to one of the top seminaries in the world, and I was a punk who went to Word of Life and Liberty University. What did he know? By the way, they're best friends now, by the way. The world was ending and the rapture was imminent. I steadfastly believed it until I didn't anymore. He goes on to say, When I ended up in seminary, no less than a week went by before I realized that end times scary believers were actually in a vast majority in Christianity and believed an entire worldview that wasn't in the Bible. He says in quotes, Go look. There's no falling planes, no taxi cabs going off the road, no scenes of a million people missing. It's not there. I can't even refute a passage about it because there's not one to refute. Ultimately, he says, I realized that while everyone else was busy improving the world, I'd wasted my time worrying that Jesus was going to walk in with, walk in with me on a, with a woman. can't even say that because I know what he wrote. Um, it was so disappointing to find out that I had been duped all those years. But beautiful, too, because it led me to a healthy, optimistic, biblical worldview. Not the brain-dead rubbish that had been fed to me by fundamentalist preachers, but the real deal biblical message of hope. Then he spends a long time in the article talking about how the entire marketing scheme besides the idea of the left-behind genre, if I told you how much money they made from that, you would think we could solve the national debt, because we could. And he goes into great deal with that if you want to look that up. He says, if our beliefs are right, don't they lead to right actions? Because if you think everything's horrible and it's going to hell in a handbasket, you don't want to fix it, do you? Because you don't want to stop what God's doing. But didn't Jesus come to bring good news? Benjamin Corey finishes his article as he finishes almost every article with this phrase. Core beliefs drive your, our behavior, even when we don't realize it. The words that come out of your mouth, because grandpa's in your bones, even if Jesus is in your heart, not always the most productive language to use, minister included. Second, in an article written by Rachel Bloom in 2013, entitled, Three, Te Three Things Teenagers Are Looking For in Religion, she talks about listening to Tony Campalo. Tony Campalo may be a celebrity minister you're familiar with. He is described as a celebrity minister. He is currently the associate pastor of Mount Carmel Baptist Church in West Philadelphia, which is affiliated with ABC USA, and he attended an ABC USA seminary. He's the formal spiritual advisor to Bill Clinton and is very passionate about social justice, just like his son, which is important for this discussion. She says in the article, Tony Campalo kicked off the early day of the Youth Work Summit in 2013 with a general introduction. He quoted from Pew Research, which is a big group that we get information from, and discovered three things that young people look for in religion but usually don't find. One is spirituality, one is authenticity, and three is hopeful eschatology. There's that annoying word again. Spirituality is not hard to figure out. They want to see that you do things because God has asked you to do things. Because you do things because you feel God wants you to. Because we know what love requires. Authenticity is actually following through. Not that you're going to be perfect. Not that it's going to be great. Not that you're never going to fail. But that you actually try to live out what you believe. In polling teenagers and postmodern thinkers, these were two of the things. But the third was the most important. And Rachel writes in his article that she was shocked how important this third thing was. She says, this part really resonated with me. That may be also because like Tony Campalo, I grew up in a Baptist church that seemed to delight in the world taking a turn for the worst. Because it meant Jesus was coming back soon. 
In many churches, all young people hear is how bad the world is, how rotten our culture is, and how the whole creation groans and labors. But they don't hear about hope and peace. She says in her article, Young people need hope now more than ever. Our eschatology, our view of the end of the world, should radiate hope because we have every reason to be hopeful. The enemy has been defeated already. The world may or may not be getting worse. But the kingdom of God, no matter what, is always getting better. God is at work carrying out his plans. And no matter what your circumstances is and what your judgment is and what your thought is about the coming of Jesus that we celebrate during Advent, when we only view it as things have to get so much worse and so much worse and so much worse, you may, your core beliefs may be showing something you don't want to show. As you can learn in watching the movie Leaving My Father's Faith, Tony Campolo had a son named Bart. You may be familiar with Bart. You may not be familiar with Bart. Bart at this point, I mean, he's probably a little older than me at this point. But Bart had been a minister for quite a while under Tony and branched out and done lots of other things. But on his Thanksgiving when Bart was 50, he said to his dad he didn't believe in God. And Tony said it was like somebody put a knife in my stomach. It was particularly painful, as they say, because they had worked in ministry before and Bart was doing so many other things. His son, Bart Campolo, is a standard description of why the language that we use and the way we talk about our faith is very, very important. And I have a bombshell to drop on you at somewhere in here because I know I'm not going to be distracted from it. But the language that we use to talk about our faith inadvertently makes God look bad. I quote from an article about this. It says, His son Bart gradually shed various Christian doctrines on his way to atheism. By the way, Bart would be very uncomfortable with this article calling him an atheist. He's a humanist. We can argue about the difference later. He shed the idea that God was really in control when dealing with a horribly abused nine-year-old girl. Then he became more of a universalist because he couldn't visualize God punishing people. Then he rejected the church's traditional position on homosexuality based on how he saw them treated by fundamentalist Christian groups. He also said that he had seemingly unanswered prayer for years and years and years. Tony, his father, celebrity minister, PhD, teacher in sociology, teacher in religion, all these things said he was losing confidence in Jesus because he was losing confidence in Scripture. Sorry, the pause is because I have a note here to decide if I'm going to say this. It's not going to appear on a screen. You don't get to take a picture. Sorry. We'll get to this another time. Want to make sure we're clear, we're 100% clear, and you hear me exactly the way I'm saying this, and if I go way too long, I'm sorry, there'll be an entire sermon dedicated to this, at least one, maybe two. Your faith is not and has never, so that's really bad English, nor should it ever be, don't panic when I say this, built upon the Bible. Your faith shall be and shall always be built upon the historical fact of Jesus' resurrection. If the Bible disappeared, you still get to have faith. If the resurrection disappears, we are wasting our time. Now, 
as American Baptist USA articles say, we view the Bible as one of the best, best methods to point to Jesus. As you'll hear me say, as scary as it is, if it wasn't scary enough what I just said, the Bible didn't exist at least until 400 A.D. So was the Christian's faith before 400 A.D. useless? I think not. They, over, they conquered the Roman Empire. Perhaps we should stop talking about the Bible like it fell from the sky and if everything in it must make perfect sense at all times. Because I don't know about you, I don't always know if I'm believing the right things, but because of the resurrection, I can always know I'm doing the right things because I know what love requires. Now, before you panic, I have over 60 graduate credit hours in just biblical books and biblical studies. The Bible is important, but if it disappeared tomorrow, your faith still exists. The resurrection disappeared tomorrow. Paul's correct in 1 Corinthians 15. We are wasting our time. I know I'm ranting, but the way we talk about the Bible may inadvertently push people away. Oh, did I mention Bart Campolo? Tony's exact quote is, he was losing confidence because he was losing confidence in Scripture. The final blow to Bart's Christianity is he had a bike accident. There was trauma. He woke up after trauma, amnesia, and he claimed that he never believed in eternal life. He never believed in anything. But whenever asked, he always said, because I didn't believe the scriptures. How you resolve that is your deal. But he moved away because he had been taught and taught and taught that if you could disbelieve one little section of the biblical text, if you could disbelieve that Joshua prayed in 13 words and made the world stand still, made the sun stand still, that the Bible, or all these things, no, your faith is based in the resurrection. Maybe we need to repent of the idea that the resurrection isn't the most important thing in our lives. Now that I've scared you beyond belief, hearing these stories, what would John the Baptist's words be to us today? I think John would be saying to us something simple like, I think you need to look at what you believe and how you act. Maybe you believe some things and associate some things that maybe aren't true. Maybe I believe some things and associate that aren't true. And how do they affect people who don't have the same faith in Jesus that you have? We may not always know what to believe, but we know what love requires of us. The world must see us doing good so the world will take Jesus seriously. As the title of the sermon implies, you want to take a walk on the wild side and ask like Jesus did, act like John the Baptist did, act like the people who literally acted and changed everything there was in the Roman Empire. It took a while, but they did. Then maybe we should live in hope instead of always talking about things being hopeful, hopeless and useless. Our idea of hope and peace may be different than the biblical writers. Your idea of peace may be no war. As a constant theme in the Avengers comic books, which they didn't do a good job in the movie is, you think peace is an absence of conflict. Peace is way more than that.
peace starts with hope. And we have hope in a resurrection. Not just hope that something magical will happen. May I remind you, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 1 Peter 3.15 But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. In Matthew 24, the text that we used last week, there's a line that says that the whole world will see the kingdom of God. How's the whole world going to see it if all we're talking about is how bad things are? The kingdom of God has made things better and will always be better. It will always get better. Now, the world may look worse. I'm not arguing that. But all we do is talk about the world being worse. We make Jesus not seem better. John the Baptist would chop that tree down with ferociousness. Maybe we should too. Let's pray. Holy God, I really, really, is not very spiritual prayer here, really don't like preaching about John the Baptist in this section. Everything was black and white to him. Everything was so simple, and I live in a world that seems so messy. And I want things to be simple, but they're not. And I want my Bible, when I choose to read it, to magically just tell me everything I need to know. I don't want to do any work. It's hard, God. And I know... If you were here, standing right next to me, not just your spirit, but in body, you would say, yeah, I know it's difficult. That's why I lived and I died and I rose from the dead for you. And Lord, as I pray to you with people listening, I just even feel hypocritical just saying those words. Because I like comfort. And I like ease. And I like thinking that I know everything. And I just don't. But no matter what, help me to remember that you have always been here for me. And that you bring hope. And you bring joy. And you bring peace. Thank you. In Jesus' name.